Have you ever been pulled towards something? Like a tractor beam, a magnet, pulling you towards something that you're not quite sure what it will be. Today, I talked to Dr. Michael Hosking, a gentleman who was pulled towards something bigger and better for himself after going through something very difficult. Dr. Michael Hosking started as a biologist in teaching, and specifically ecology and evolutionary biology. And that path led him down a couple of paths, which then led him to spin. And utilizing spin, along with concepts of yoga, this is an entertainment. This is about the mind and the body coming together to enter a portal to find out about the deeper meaning of yourself. Our conversation with Dr. Hosking was really enlightening and interesting and informative and just learning so much about our potential and how we can enter that portal to a different world that's truly still, truly quiet, truly transformative in many ways. So I encourage you to listen and to enjoy the conversation that I had with Dr. Michael Hosking. Okay, Michael, it is awesome to have you on here today. My podcast, thanks for coming on, man. Hey, my pleasure. I'm I'm glad to be here. So I, uh, like a lot of people that I meet, I meet through LinkedIn, and I found your profile absolutely fascinating. And I've, I was like, I have to learn more about what Dr. Michael Hosking is up to. Yeah. yeah. And so I, I, I first was really interested, like, I saw about, you know, your education. So evolutionary biology, is that your undergrad that you did in? My undergrad's from Creighton University, and that's mm-hmm. just a biology degree. And then okay. my PhD from Indiana is in the Ecology, Evolution, and Behavioral Biology program. Tell me, well, what got you interested in that? I mean, it's it's not a field that I'm super familiar with, so tell me a little bit about why you got into that. Well, um, as an undergrad, we studied quite a bit of evolutionary biology, and I was really interested in... Um, I, I guess the, the mechanisms of change in populations over time and how that contributed to diversity on the planet. And then I was, I, I just got deeply interested in the form and function relationships in biology. And to my mind's eye, form is function and function is form. I love that deep relationship hmm. between how things are built and structured and, and how they work. And evolutionary biology leads you to thinking a lot about that, either from the cellular level all the way up to the organismal level or even population level. So I I got really super interested in how evolutionary forces act on populations and species in order to create a a more adapted population within a given environment. And that kind of led me to wanting to study evolutionary biology as a graduate student. So that brought me on to Indiana University. Fantastic. So what, what research were you working on 
um, and related to that or, you know, your dissertation, what, what were you focusing on primarily? Well, I ended up in a laboratory with a guy that studies a, a little fish called the three-spined stickleback fish. And within evolutionary and behavioral biology, it's quite a famous little fish in that some uh, early workers in evolutionary and behavioral biology used that fish for some of the early experiments. And so that fish became mostly well known for its uh, bright red coloration in the males and how that bright red coloration is used by females to select mates. You know, mm. the brighter the or the more extensive the red color, the more likely the male is to get a mate. And then once you get to that observation, then you can start asking questions about what is it about that red color that females would find attractive? What kind of information is that red color communicating to females? What do females gain from being selective in their mates? And all those kinds of questions. So I ended up studying the evolution of that red male color in the belly of the males and also the female visual system and how they interact. And, and my, my deepest question was about what, what is the information contained within that signal that the male is showing? And is it an honest signal? Because you can imagine, I suppose, that um, if a brighter red or more extensive red coloration leads to greater success in mating, that of course the genes are or, or for that will be spread in the population, but what if it could be cheated? Huh. And so there's a, there's a whole school of evolutionary thought around mate choice about whether these signals are honest signals indicating something of value to the female. And that's what I got into. I studied that red belly coloration, female mate choice, and then I did some experiments to see if that color could be cheated or altered in some way to better exploit the visual system of the female. Wow, that's incredible. Now, was there like a crossover from that into human beings? Did you ever get into that level of things, of the evolutionary aspect of that? Yeah, you know, people who study this kind of stuff always, always will kind of extrapolate to humans, you know, and their mm -hmm. behaviors. And it boils down to some simple ideas about, you know, it takes time and effort to be selective in your choosing of a mate. So why would you do that when you could just be unselective and maybe right. with anyone that comes anyone that comes along and if you're going to be selective what are you going to be selecting for and how can males enhance their chances of being chosen in those species in which females exhibit mate choice and so you know you start to think about these things in terms of humans and, and one of the one of the things that you see often in the animal kingdom is that females when they are choosy will select mates with more resources or better mm. resources. And the idea being that those males are either stronger or more capable of gathering those resources or, or and or I should say, those resources will serve the offspring well and allow them to survive at a higher rate mm. and thus into the good. So when, you come, when it comes to humans, you know, we, we always like to joke around with- Sure. That, that's how you can explain Ferraris. <laughs> <laughs> Exactly, or, right? You know, really gigantic trucks. Mm -hmm. Yep. <laughs> Fancy watches. These are, as we joke around, you know, humans are much more complex, but as we, we, yeah. we used to joke around, these are mating signals to display your resource holding capabilities.
that's completely what I thought, honestly, when you started saying about that. And it was yeah. interesting to me, like I was watching um, this documentary yesterday, this series is called um, Why We Hate. And it was basically this evolutionary anthropologist who was discussing basically why do animals, do they have that capacity to hate that human beings have? And how is that evolutionarily, how has that been throughout the years adapted? And they talked about like chimpanzees and bonomos. And it was really fascinating about learning about these different animal species and how they interact and how they choose each other and the violence that is inherent in some of the animals based off of like where they are like in the river system that they're they're living and they cut whatever and i thought it was fascinating i was like it's kind of interesting being that i'm going to be having this conversation today a little bit at least a little bit in the beginning about this before we move to your other stuff and mm -hmm. so i find that stuff extremely fascinating um and so you were teaching this information for a while in different places yeah, so I finished my PhD up at Indiana, and I ended up staying there a couple of years as a visiting assistant professor teaching environmental science. And then I took a position at Davidson College in North Carolina, where I ended up teaching a whole variety of biology courses in their biology department there. And I did that for, I don't know, three, four, maybe four years. All right. And so what, what was the transition? It seems like you're doing, I mean, on some level, something similar, but you're in the health and wellness exercise fitness business at this point. What was that transition like? Well, it's been, it, there were two transitions. So uh -huh. after, a few years, after a few years at Davidson College, I decided I wanted to get out of academia, not because I disliked Davidson College or the students mm -hmm. or their different fantastic. It's, it's, it's an amazing place. And my colleagues were amazing too. It's just that I wanted to get out of academia. So I left, but I really had no training for anything other than teaching biology at this point. Right. Right. And I was, I was going, how can I do this? What, what I need to, I need to make a living. What can I do? And I decided at that point, this is like, I don't know, during 2002, maybe mm -hmm. 2003, I realized that at that time that the internet was a really powerful communication tool that had not really been exploited particularly well for educational purposes. And I thought, well, wait a minute, what if I devised a mechanism to deliver math and science instruction to high school kids through the internet? And at that time, all, of online education was simply text delivered by the internet. Right. And it struck me as really odd. That's kind of like a faster Pony Express delivery system for yeah. correspondence, right? Right. And it seemed to me that the internet was essentially a communication tool rather than a publishing medium. Like the highest purpose of, of the internet would be in communication interaction rather than publishing text content, which is essentially a correspondence course from 1890 just delivered faster. Right, right. So I developed a system for delivering math and science instruction online that had no text content whatsoever. It was all 15-minute little instructional units using a whiteboard and this little device that captured the writing on the whiteboard in real time along with my voice. 
And then we supported that with asynchronous discussion boards. And at the time, the best possible real-time interaction tool, which was these kind of chat rooms, right? I remember, yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, so what we were delivering were 15-minute lessons within a particular course. And then after that was created and delivered live, it would be archived. And so after a while, we had entire courses broken up into 15-minute units that students can go in and review at any time or work through sequentially. And then we'd support that with asynchronous discussion required and then live interaction in the chat rooms. But then when bandwidth became more available to people, we shifted to some of these meeting apps where we would interact live with the students with voice and also with this, this virtual whiteboard that, that we use to deliver right. the lesson. And we called those office hours. So I developed this whole system. I called it personal professors. And we delivered math and science education to kids all over the United States, and in some cases in Europe. And so I did that for wow. a number of years, Darian. And then I became a consultant in online learning and ended up as a, as a national director of curriculum for a for-profit online learning company. And then I transitioned from that into the Then it happened. Space. What was that like? I mean, had you had experience or... Have you been somebody who was in the health and wellness before getting into the field? No. In fact, I, I've been an athlete my entire life. Mm -hmm. And there was a there was a real difficult and yet important period of about two years after I left the online learning field before I got into health and wellness that kind of determined my path. In the last, I'd say, 10 to 20 years, my primary sport has been cycling. But after I left that, that uh, position as a national director of curriculum for an online learning company, I went into just a very serious PTSD and depression episode that lasted a couple of years. And during that time, I was taking every known antidepressant, atypical antipsychotic as an adjutant, to the antidepressants and also the anti-anxiety drugs, you know, the benzodiazepines. Yeah. And so I was taking massive combinations of all three of those, seeing a psychiatrist once a week, seeing a therapist once to twice a week. I even ended up going to a psychiatric hospital in Arizona called Sarah Tucson. Spent a month there. Nothing was working. And my psychiatrist at one of our weekly meetings said, Michael, I don't know what to do with you. I have never seen anything like this. We've tried every combination of drugs over several years. I'm going to have to put you on lithium. Oh, wow. Yeah. And of course, lithium is, I mean, it's, it's scary sounding, right? Right. And I remember I went home from that meeting with her and I sat on my couch and I thought, well, this is no good. I've done nothing now for two years. And that's a fact. I laid in bed for the entire time. And now I'm going to go on lithium, and I don't like the sounds of that. I've got to do something. And so I thought, what are the things that make me happy? Well, playing my guitar, hadn't done that in two years. Mm -hmm. Listening to my stereo, hadn't done that in two years. And riding my bike. So I thought, well, maybe I'll try riding, <laughs> maybe I'll try riding my bike. <laughs> right. 
But if you've ever experienced this kind of depression, PTSD, it's just, it's debilitating. And, and the idea of actually going for a bike ride was far too much. But I realized I didn't have to go for a bike ride right then. I just had to decide that I'd be going for a bike ride at some point. And I could baby step this. And so I said, all right, just find your cycling socks. <laughs> right. So I found my cycling socks, put them next to my bed, laid down. Next day, well, my cycling socks are there. I think I'll find my cycling shorts. Found them, put them next to the socks, laid down. And over a period of about six or seven days, I got everything together. And the next obvious step was to put air in my tires. <laughs> <laughs> right. Which I did. And at that point, I said, well, I think I'll go for a bike ride. So I got on my bike and I went, I went downstairs. And, and, you know, and, and Darren, I don't remember this first bike ride. I, I just remember it so well. I was so scared and nervous about leaving my place, um, about being on the bike, because I hadn't been on the bike in two years. I, I, I mean, I, was, I remember thinking, how remarkable is this? I've raced bikes for years, and at th this right. point, I'm afraid to leave my place and go out on my bike. How interesting. So anyway, I went for a two-mile ride out, two-mile ride back in, four miles total. And I sat down on my couch, and I thought, well, I felt pretty good, and actually, I feel a little bit better. I'll try that again tomorrow. And over a period of weeks, I started to string together daily bike rides to the point where I was doing my 20, 30, 40-mile rides and feeling remarkably better. And I went to my psychiatrist, and I said to her, you know, I don't think I'm taking these drugs anymore. I don't need them. I don't want them. And she, her eyes just... And she, her eyes just opened up wide, and she said, Michael, I do not recommend that. <laughs> right. I said, I'm telling you, something's going on here. I'm going to figure out what it is. And as a scientist and biologist, I dove into the medical literature, and I started reading PubMed, and I, and I realized that there, there was a revolution afoot in neuroscience and brain science and depression and anxiety, and that is that aerobic exercise stimulates all sorts of healthy things in the brain and can be as effective or more effective than antidepressants in treating depression. And I quit the drugs, kept riding my bike, and then I found a, a Harvard Medical School professor who's written about this. And his name's John Rady. And mm -hmm. I I called up Harvard and I said, hey, I'd like to take a continuing medical education class with him. Can I do that? I'm not a medical doctor. I have a PhD in biology, but I'd like to take this course he's offering. It's a week-long course at Esalen in California. And they said, sure, go ahead. So I signed up for that, a week-long course at beautiful Esalen Institute in Big Sur, California. And I, um, at the end of that week, learning about how exercise changes the brain, I decided I'm going to start a fitness business. It's going to be cycling because that's what I know best. And we're going to teach people to move for health and happiness, mental health, physical health, being present and moving for happiness. And so that's how I ended up starting Rebo Cycle. Wow, man. What a story. That's incredible. Really incredible. I'm interested, like, 
you know, the neuroscience. I think it's fascinating. So what, what were the, I, I heard kind of the larger conclusions, but what is exactly happening inside the brain that's causing that change? You know, it's, it's a fascinating thing. The, the primary, the ones I talk about most to people are related to the stress response and also to the hippocampus, which is a tiny little part of the brain mm-hmm. related. And that, that hippocampus is closely tied to another part of the brain called the amygdala. And they kind of work together to help us with memories and emotions associated with memories, which if you think about it from an evolutionary sense, Darren, makes a whole lot of sense, right? Let's say you're a primitive proto-human walking along the plains and you see the spotted creature that leaps at you and tears gashes along your arm. You survive, you get back, it'd be really smart to remember that. (laughs) Yes, of course, yeah. And so the amygdala and the hippocampus in that situation would, would kind of freeze those memories for you. And the next time you saw that, you'd have a strong emotional response to that that would then allow you to get away from it or avoid it, right? Right. So the amygdala and the hippocampus work together in that function. But depression and the stress response and anxiety are all kind of related to the amygdala, the emotions, and the hippocampus and memories. And what I discovered then is that aerobic exercise strongly reduces the stress response in the body. And the stress response, I don't know how much of this you know, so forgive me if this is something you already no, know. No, no. I mean, and I, I have a decent understanding, but I think my listeners, it's really for them. I want them to understand it, you know. Sure. So the stress response is, is part of what we call the HPA axis, and that's a hypothalamus pituitary adrenal gland axis. Hypothalamus and the pituitary are part of the brain, and then the adrenal glands are on top of the kidneys, thus the name adrenal. And it's that axis that responds to stress by releasing stress hormones into the body. Mm-hmm. And Aerobic exercise reduces activity in that axis, the HPA axis, thus reducing the stress response in the body, therefore lowering the stress hormones in the body. And so anxiety and stress are highly related to depression. And so there's one side of it you can reduce with aerobic activity, aerobic exercise, reduce that hypothalamus, pituitary adrenal gland access, right. you feel stressed. Fewer glucocorticoids, the stress hormones rotating mm-hmm. around the body. The other part that I find, found most fascinating was this promotion of neurogenesis in the hippocampus of the brain. Now, neurogenesis means the creation of neurons. And I'll just take a quick aside, Darian. When I was in graduate school at Indiana University through about, uh, what, 1997 or so, if I had said out loud in the biology department there that vertebrates or humans could grow new neurons, brand new ones, in their brain, they would have thrown me out of the building. Wow. Because it was just assumed it was dogma that neurons cannot be created anew right you can 
enhance connections and synapses within the brain. But generally, it, the idea was you can't grow new neurons. Once they're gone, they're gone. Right. But yet, here I was in 2004 or so, no, no wait, 2008 or 10, reading about the growth of brand new neurons in the hippocampus of the brain. That would be the birth, growth, development, maturation of brand new neurons. It's right. within the hippocampus. And it was just shocking to me. This is happening. And to find out that aerobic exercise is the way that scientists in the lab were promoting the growth of these neurons so they could study them. So you take a bunch of, you take a bunch of rats and you want to help grow new neurons in the hippocampus so you can dye them, study them, look at them. Well, they just had the rats run a lot on treadmills. Right. <laughs> in order to promote that process. Huh. And I realized, well, the hippocampus is where depression is kind of located. And then I started reading as people became more familiar with this neurogenesis in the brain that, wait a minute, bunches of these antidepressants also seem to promote neurogenesis in the brain, in the hippocampus. And then it became, as time has gone by, it became very clear that it's probably the case that promotion of neurogenesis within the hippocampus and, you know, the reduction of the stress response are what you do to treat depression. Hmm. And now everyone thinks that it's a, you know, you got too little uh, serotonin in the brain, right? Yes, right. That's what everyone believes. But that, that, that hypothesis about how antidepressants work it's not well supported. And if you next time you're watching TV and you see an ad for an antidepressant, read very carefully the fine print at the bottom. And they'll say, we do not know how this antidepressant works. <laughs> Isn't that amazing? <laughs> yeah. It is thought that by increasing levels of serotonin in the synapse, you know, all that. But no one really knows. And it turns out that it may be, in fact, the neurogenesis theory of depression that's actually what's going on so wow. those two things those two things the reduction of the stress response through aerobic exercise and the promotion of neurogenesis within the hippocampus seem to be the main parts of how aerobic exercise can help treat depression stress and anxiety now was there ever have you, have you uh, been associated with studies about um resistance training or external resistance in relation to that as well not as many studies around that, Darian. The primary focus has been on aerobic exercise, and it's probably because there's some unique things that are result that that are released from working muscles in aerobic exercise that may not be as high when you're doing resistance type training. So if you think mm -hmm. about an hour bike ride, that's muscles firing, you know, thousands and thousands of times, sure. right? Whereas you go and lift weights, you might do three sets of ten. And so most of the studies I'm familiar with have been done with aerobic exercise, and they point particularly to some of these factors that are released from the working muscles. And one of them has gotten a lot of press, and that's called BDNF, which is mm -hmm. short for brain-derived neurotrophic factor. And 
even though its name says brain derived, it's released from working muscles and then migrates into the brain and seems to promote the, the birth and nurturing of young neurons within the hippocampus. I see. I see. Um, and it makes sense. So essentially, so like the, the resistance training of that, maybe the, the firing of the muscles during aerobic exercise over a long, maybe steady state is more conducive than kind of your short term bursts of firing of muscles and then a longer term of resting. Maybe is that what you're saying, essentially? Yeah. And, I th and, and no one's really sure at this point, but that's my hypothesis right. about why people okay. focus on exercise. So this led you to the creation of um, RevoCycle, then using something you know, cycling, and, and focusing on it. It's interesting. I was reading up a little bit about your kind of using with getting people into that flow state, which I, I know a decent amount about. But when did you start really focusing on adding kind of that flow state into this aspect of it? So when I was recovering from my depression, in addition to my bike rides, I also went on what I called mindful walks through a place here in Portland called the Hoyt Arboretum. And the Hoyt Arboretum is just this beautiful few hundred acre parcel up in the hills with beautiful paths through. And I would go there not to get anywhere. I wasn't trying to cover ground when I went on those trails. I was, in fact, trying to cover as little ground as possible and use my senses in order to be as present as possible. Because as you've probably heard over the years, you know, a lot of times our stress and our worry is entirely a function of our thoughts, mm -hmm. regretting, the, regretting the past or worrying about the future. And those thoughts cause us stress and anxiety. And if we can get out of those thoughts, we can be present. And when we're present, we're fully in the moment and not worried about the future or regretting the past. And that reduces then the stress response. Right. And if you get really, really fully present, then you can get into this state where time kind of stands still. And the natural sense of joy that the Buddhists teach us is within us at all times has a chance to bubble up because it's now not covered over by anxiety and stress. So I use these mindful walks as a way of getting as present as possible by touching trees, smelling leaves, listening for the wind through the leaves, feeling the bark on the trees. As I try to gather as much sensory information as possible in order to be fully in the moment. And at the same time, I was practicing some meditation at a, at a Buddhist center here in Portland, and I was using my bike rides as a way of being really present too. And it just occurred to me that all three of these things are ways of quieting the mind down and focusing. And that's meditation. Yeah. And I realized then that when you're working hard at something like cycling, you can use that hard work and that challenge to really super quiet the mind down. Because now it boils down to the muscles working, the smooth pedal stroke, grab one more gear, stay with it if you can, breathe deeply. And that is the epitome of the flow state. And, of course, runners know this, cyclists know it, skiers mm -hmm. know it, paddlers know it, rowers know it, 
computer coders know it, artists know it, <laughs> right? right? The key is that you're working at something that challenges you enough that you need to really focus in on it. If it's too easy, you get bored. If it's too hard, you get frustrated. And so you want to find that sweet spot of working hard and then really tuning into what you're doing to get into that flow state. And, you know, the Hungarian uh, psychologist who coined that term mm -hmm. said that it is the most profoundly happy place a human can be. And that term, flow state, actually got kind of, kind of folded into the whole positive psychology movement. Yes. And so the idea is that rather than teaching a fitness class, a cycling class as a way of to, dis to distract you from what you're doing, instead we're going to teach it as a way to focus the mind on what you're doing so that you can use the movement to be present and therefore have an opportunity to get into that flow state if, e if even for a little bit and notice the mental health benefits of it. Now, what's interesting is so now we're up to a point where I think our conversation offline is intersecting. So we had a phone call before this podcast and I, th I thought it was great. I mean, I feel like we're very similar people. And I've always had this mindset, which has always been a very dissenting mindset from a lot of my colleagues, is that so much of what we do with exercise is built to distract us from getting into the flow state. So I know you'll dive deeper into this, but for instance, with spin, as and again, I know you you have opinions on this, and I definitely I think it's very similar. So much of it is how loud can the music be, how pumping can it be, and creating this almost night neo nightclub environment. Yeah. And what right sounds like? See, I never jived with that. I always wanted to be very close to the feelings that my body had, not mm -hmm. be not be close to the music or the external surrounding. Because I've always I'm always chasing the flow state, and I always feel close to it when I exercise hard. Always, it yeah. it completely drowns out anything else in my life. That's my meditation. It literally yeah. becomes singular focused. You know. Yeah. And Darian, if I might just add, I've been an athlete since I was about six years old. Every single athlete I've ever known thinks that about fitness or exercise. Every right. single one, right? And yet the fitness business does not teach that. The industry does not teach that. The industry approaches fitness as something you do for blank, fill in a body part or a body shape. Right. Whereas every athlete I've ever known does what they do because it feels good, because they feel good when they're done. They are getting better at something. They are progressing. They're mastering. And they're getting into the zone. And they seek it out time and time and time again. That's why people get up at 530 in the morning to go for a run. Everyone else thinks they're crazy, right? <laughs> right. I've ridden my right. bike. This, I've ridden my bike up to this very steep, long hill here outside of Portland many, many, many times. And as I told some new rider this morning, not once has someone yelled at me. Not once. Yeah. And I've never done it to get ready for summer. 
I've done it because it feels powerful when I do it. It's a challenge. It frightens me a little bit. And yeah. when I'm in the midst of it, I get into this zone that is incredibly powerful. And then time flies. I don't remember half the climb mm-hmm. and I get to, and I'm elated. Every athlete I know can relate to that. But I totally in, agree. Yeah. In the fitness industry, that idea is nearly unheard of. And instead, fitness is sold as a way to get, as we said, fill in the blank, body part or body shape. And I think that does a disservice to people who come to the fitness industry because we're now telling them that we're only doing this to change your body. And therefore, since we know it's no fun, we're going to make it fun and distracting. (laughs) Right? Yeah. (laughs) Like exercise, the the assumption that goes into fitness, and, and I've said this many, many times in talks all over the place. The assumption that fitness is built on is that exercise is no fun. I use a different word sometimes. Yeah. And exercise is no fun, but we got to do it in order to get hot. Because once we're hot, we'll be happy. So (laughs) since it's no fun, let's make it entertaining and distracting and a party so that you'll actually do it and then you'll get hot and then you'll be happy. I I fundamentally disagree with everything in that. I agree. I agree. I fundamentally disagree as well. With anything and and in that. I don't think I'm crazy, Darian, because every athlete I know in my entire life does not approach movement in that fashion. They approach it because it makes them feel good. They are mastering something. It's time to be alone and present. You feel this amazing body working in a beautiful fashion, and it makes you happy, and you seek it out time and time again for those reasons. Yeah. You know, what's interesting, Michael, is that um, it's very, one, it's it's awesome to hear that because I, I don't always hear that. And I think, um, like yourself, I've been an athlete forever. I was a collegiate runner. And so I get so much of that feeling like I like to be close to that edge. I feel alive during that yeah. time. But I also feel like if I have other things distracting me, it pulls me away from that edge. And I want to be in that rhythm where it feels like I'm in another dimension almost when I'm doing it. So if I have to worry about what a playlist is or what the lighting's like, completely disrupts the flow that I want to be in. But a lot of exercise, at least in the industry, uh, my my buddy Dwayne Wimmer, who was on the podcast colleague, he said exercise today is just entertainment. So much about entertaining the consumer versus actually telling them the truth about what it is. Yeah, I totally, totally agree. And as I said, the assumption that is built into every fitness business I know is that exercise sucks, but we got to do it in order to get hot. Right. And, and as I said, I think that's doing a disservice to people because you and I and all the other athletes we've known in our lives have found something powerful and transformative. And that is their movement form, whatever it is, skiing, paddling, rowing, climbing, whatever. Right. And it's changed their lives to the point where they'll they'll do it when it's raining and cold outside. They'll do it even though they have to get up an hour early. They'll make time for it. There's never not enough time for it. It's profoundly beneficial to their mental health and their physical health. 
And I think the industry should be selling that to people. Yeah, that would be nice. Um, <laughs> but it's it's kind of like a large discussion on a lot of things in life. But, you know, it's what's glamorous, what is sexy. And it's interesting because a lot of professionals I know were not athletes growing up. That's not, they didn't They didn't have that experience of competing or being in something that required their full attention. So you get a lot of people in the fitness industry here where it's they really their first introduction to exercise is being a personal trainer or being an instructor things of that nature and so you know they're doing let's say they're a spin instructor they're doing things on a spin bike that you would never do actually it's just gimmicky and so there's so much gimmicks involved in it yeah yeah the, and the gimmicks are simply a way to keep people distracted and or entertained rather yes. than actually tuning into the movement. And I get it. I get why they think that's necessary because they have a belief system that brought them to the industry in the first place. And that belief system is that you got to do exercise in order to get blank body part. And if we can shift people's minds around the fundamental value of movement, then you would see the disappearance of the gimmicks and the disappearance of the distraction and a return to the body and the movement form itself as our focal point. So at your at your place, take me through what is very, very different about doing cycling or having a cycling class that's different than other forms that are out there currently. Well, as you've mentioned, spin starting in what, 2010 or 11 with the rise of the soul cycle phenomenon has become what is generally called a dance party on a bike. <laughs> yes. Or a club, right? It's like a Las Vegas club. Exactly. And, and and that has become just a predominant mode of delivering cycling exercise classes. There are hundreds and hundreds of studios all around the country now that are essentially just uh, cut and paste copies of SoulCycle. And look, I get it. Lots of people love SoulCycle. And that's great. I'm, I'm not... I'm not demeaning people that love that. It's just that I think there's something more available. And so RevoCycle has very few similarities with any of those studios. I tell people the only thing in common is that we have speakers and we have bikes. Everything else is different from why we do what we do to how we do what we do to how we talk about what we do, to the reasons ultimately that people stay with us. So I tell people, in fact, we just had two new people at our noon class today. So I said, hey guys, welcome. Have you done spin before? Yep. Great. Have you read much about what we do? No. <laughs> <laughs> That's very common, right? Because right, like, we right. reading cycles the name, right? We're the only place like this in the country. Everyone assumes we're like one of the spin studios. Right. It's a natural thing like that. Yeah. yeah it's a natural thing. Great. Have you ever done a bar class? Have you ever done a yoga class? Yeah. Yeah. Done both of those. Great. We're like that. And they look at me. I said, calm voice, attention to alignment, focus on the muscles as they're moving, quieting the mind. <laughs> Mm -hmm. <laughs> and they're like, 
oh, really? I said, yes, really. And so that's what we're doing. I, I in fact, will tell people what we're doing here today is really no different than yoga. Same body, same breaths, same muscles, same presence, same focus for the same reasons. And they're like, oh. <laughs> right. And so what we do, Darian, you know, we'll start off the class with a three-minute, three four-minute introductory song that's taken from film music or yoga-style music. Mm -hmm. And we'll have people really quiet their minds, take a few deep breaths from the belly, close their eyes, feel the muscles as they move the pedals slowly around in a circle, release the tension in the belly, let your shoulders relax, really bring them into the body in the first three to four minutes. And then we'll start to, of course, work in the harder and harder efforts using different levels of resistance and different cadences. But the focus is always on the movement. So it's constant reminders to check back into the body. What is your breath doing right now? Have your shoulders hunched up, let them down. So it's taught much like a yoga class. You know, I, in yoga, the teachers will give the same reminder cues over and over and over again. Not because the people don't know it, it's because our minds tend to wander. We tend to leave the body and worry about tomorrow or regret last night. And so those are reminders not only to alignment, but also to be present. And so we do that during our classes. We ban all talk of calories burned or bodies. <laughs> we, we just don't talk about it. It's irrelevant to us. And instead, we talk about being present feeling the muscles work, what's your breath doing, what's your heart rate doing. And some of our classes will say, I'm going to give you two minutes to hold this cadence at this level of resistance. It should be challenging but doable. And now I'm going to shut off the microphone. And you're going to find yourself within 15 seconds worrying about something for tomorrow or regretting something from yesterday. And when that happens, which it will, I want you to notice it. Simply notice it. Don't judge it. Just notice it and then come back to the rhythm of the song or the muscles working or the breath. And at the end of two to three minutes, I'll check back in with you and then we'll shut off the microphone. And people find that highly challenging, not physically, mentally. Right. Because we start to recognize, Darian, that a vast majority of our time spent here on the planet is spent worrying about tomorrow or regretting yesterday. Very little of our time is spent being right here, right now. Or as Ram Das said in the 70s, what was it, be here now? Yeah, be here now. Mm -hmm. And so wow. that, that's, that's typical of a class we'll teach, which is you know start with body awareness and breath, just like yoga. Frequent reminders during the class to the body, the alignment, the muscles, the breath, the shoulders, the elbows, the spine, sensations. And then little practices now and then of noticing your thoughts and coming back. So it sounds like almost kind of a very meditative spin class in a sense it's, that you're it, focusing it, on people getting into the flow, you know? Totally, totally. In fact, we have a class that we call Revo Chill, which is- I like that. It's a moving meditation class specifically. Now, all of our classes are taught with alignment and breath and no yelling, no cussing, no referring to bodies or body parts or calories burned. All of our classes are that way. 
but we have a very specific class that is called a moving meditation class. And it's one I teach off the bike, walking around the room as if I'm leading meditation or yoga. And it's set entirely to yoga music, set entirely to film music. And there are long periods where we're doing nothing but just simply tuning in with, with reminders about being present in the breath and the body. So, yeah, yeah, it's, it's meditative. And we have even one that's fully distilled down to moving meditation. Wow. So... If- you know, I'm envisioning this and I'm thinking also kind of about the, the research I mean, aerobic exercise and, you know, the brain and that you're taking kind of this aerobic activity, this consistent steady state, potentially aerobic activity, and then adding in meditation to pull somebody into that state of flow for them with that. I mean, is that accurate, basically, what you're doing? That's exactly what we're doing. It's so different. I've never seen that. I mean, I have done plenty of spin classes in my life, and the majority of are the ones that you think they are, these soul cycle type classes or knockoffs, X cycles, different, whatever cycle you want to call it is generally what's out there. And it's all very similar feeling. I mean, this sounds extremely different in that you're just kind of getting into the flow. You're moving, but there's that chill factor to it which i really think is very interesting because i think a lot of people would think that's opposite of what you'd be doing yeah Yeah, they do and 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 i'll tell you darian and you'll know this you'll know this already all i'm teaching is what every runner already knows every paddler already knows every Mm -hmm. rower already every cyclist already knows every there's an entire world of paddlers rowers cyclists climbers skiers golfers coders that already know that deep focus on what you're doing, challenging but doable, gets you into this beautiful flow state. And all I'm teaching is what I already knew. You know that. Yeah, and, of course. And it just happens to turn out to be the very opposite of where spin went in the last 10 years. It's crazy, right? I mean, I think, I think of... Uh, as someone who has been in athletics for a long time and especially during my competitive days, so much of, you know, getting through 5 a.m. pool practices, weightlifting sessions, running in the main portion of practices was just trying to get into a state where I could get what I needed to get done, but feel like the time wasn't dragging when I was having to be out there every single day, pounding that track, getting in the pool. How do I get my mind right on a regular basis? And I still do that to today. Before I do my workouts, I I spend a good 30 minutes of um, really what I call is my meditation, is just getting my mind prepped for what I'm going to do during my workout and the stillness. And I think that I I never see anybody around me doing that. It's just kind of like... You roll into your workout. You don't think about le- what it takes to get you into the right state of mind for that workout and doing it. Um, so I always feel very lonely in that sense because I, I don't identify with a lot of the current version of how things go. You know. Oh, totally. And me too. When I started Revo Cycle, I will tell you, I had never been to a spin class. And... I was only bringing what I knew about just the profound transformative benefits of mindfulness in movement. 
and <laughs> we had our first classes, Darren, uh-huh. and people people are staring at me like, what in the world is wrong with this guy? <laughs> and they look at it and they go, well, that's no fun. And I'd say, what right. was no fun? They'd say, your class is no fun. I said, oh, oh, okay. What do you mean by fun? <laughs> what does that I'm, mean? I'm yes. really curious. Yeah? Like, okay, tell me what you mean by fun. I'd never been to a spin class. Yeah. And then I did some research, of course, and started finding out. I was like, ah, by fun, they mean a lot of yelling and entertainment and moves and distraction. Uh-huh. Jump, jumps I, on the bike. Jumps and pushes <laughs> and tapbacks and run the world from corner to corners and weightlifting and fat. Yeah. And I, and I thought, huh, okay. So people think that's fun. Okay. But yet I know for a fact people think yoga is fun, but for different reasons. Mm-hmm. So one time one person said, this class is just no fun. I said, Thank you for your feedback. Can I ask you a couple questions? Sure. Do you do yoga? Yes. Great. Do you like it? Yes, I love it. Good. And is that fun for you? Yes. Great. Tell me how it's fun. Well, it's fun because I really feel like I quiet my mind and I kind of get into my body and I can focus on the breath and my muscles working and it really releases some stress for me. And I let that sit there for about 10 seconds. I said, isn't that what we just did? (laughs) (laughs) And they went, oh, yeah. I said, yes, same reasons, same thing, same reasons. So it's fascinating, right? Because people think in aerobic exercise, they need to be entertained and distracted because we've already talked about this. And yet in meditation or yoga, the idea is to quiet the mind and be present and really tune in. And why can't yeah. we do that in aerobic exercise? We why can. can't we? Yeah, we can. And I'd even go further to say, I think you can do it in many forms of exercise. Um, and even I, that's why I asked kind of about the resistance training aspect of it, because I, I have experienced that state during very intense, uh, you know, high intensity resistance training. And I feel it's possible. I don't have evidence, you know, research evidence on it, but just my own personal observation that 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 well is very deep in exercise yeah. and many forms of it. It's just how do you get there for a lot of people? Yeah. And there's yeah, just so and, and much then, distraction in it, you know? Yeah, let me, let me build upon what you're saying, because I totally agree. And I think we're talking about two different things now, and I just want to distinguish them. Mindfulness, that is tune into the body, the breath, the motion can be brought to every single movement form there is. Right. And mindfulness, tune into the body, the breath, the motion, being present is beneficial no matter what, no matter what, independent of any effects of, you know, hippocampus, neurogenesis, it is beneficial because it reduces a stress response. So yes, you can bring mindfulness to any movement form, weightlifting or rowing or bar or yoga, absolutely. And you will get direct mindfulness benefits from it. And I think that should be taught. I do the same with my weightlifting. My weightlifting is to me a moving meditation. 
And then this other part about neurogenesis in the hippocampus is more related to aerobic exercise per se. And you can combine the two, and that's what we're doing. Yeah, that's incredible. I, it's, it's just interesting is that people, they move their, they say, hey, I'm going to make yoga my meditation, my mindfulness practice. And then they say, these other things are for different things. I feel like we're, we're classified, we're saying, you know what, spin can't be for that because that's what yoga is for. And what it sounds like is you're saying, hey, let's break the mold. Yes, yoga is great for that, but expand your mind. It may be other things too can achieve a very similar effect. Correct. And it's, a, it's the practice itself, right? Our practice is based on tuning in the body, the breath, the muscles, being present. That effect is the same as yoga. Right. So where do you see this going for you? What's, you know, as, as a scientist, you know, it's funny, you're, you're probably always a scientist. You've been one, you're probably all, you dig deep in the literature. Where is it going? Or what, what would you like to see in terms of research or where things can be headed in health and wellness in this vein? Well, I am, one of my original ideas, Darren, you'll find this interesting. One of my original ideas after I use mindfulness mindful movement and aerobic exercise cycling to heal myself from a two-year massive depression and PTSD episode. I was so excited that I wanted to bring this new information to psychiatrists and psychologists so they would prescribe 12 weeks of three times a week aerobic exercise for the patients that were newly diagnosed with mild to moderate depression or stress disorders. That very quickly, <laughs> yeah, very quickly, I realized that ain't going to happen right now. Because, <laughs> right. because psychiatrists, including my own, had not heard of this. Mm. They did not know that aerobic exercise can grow new neurons in the brain. They didn't know about the studies, which are brand new, about how aerobic exercise is as effective as antidepressants. And therefore, I would have to embark on a gigantic educational campaign for psychologists and psychiatrists. And once I had convinced them to prescribe exercise in place of these drugs, at least at first, then I'd have to go to insurance companies. And then I'd have to convince them to pay for it. All right. <laughs> and I quickly realized they had no idea what I was talking about. And I shared some of the data with them. They said, wow, that does sound pretty good. But we have no billing codes for that. Right. We have no billing codes for that. That was the answer. Wow. So it became pretty clear in 2013 or so when I started RevoCycle that this that, that whole insurance and mental health care complex was not set up to deal with this new way of treating mild to moderate depression and stress-related disorders. Now, I will say as an aside, in the United Kingdom, their National Health Service is prescribing exercise for people who are newly diagnosed with mild to moderate depression mm. before they prescribe any drugs at all. Wow, I didn't know that. Yep, so they wow. have taken the taken up the new information and are actively prescribing exercise for people through the National Health Service in the UK. It, we're, we're nowhere near that right now. So right, right. 
your question was, where are we going to, you know, where do you want to go with this? Well, that was one of my original dreams. And it's increasingly becoming understood that this is a powerful approach. So I think that opportunity is opening up. Um, I, I, I recently wrote about this on my LinkedIn page, but I trace the rise of distracted fitness is what I call it to the rise of social media. Totally. Completely. And, and I believe like Facebook, Instagram, Snapchat in particular, these are, as you well know, I'm sure are um, apps that are designed to hijack our reward systems in our brains yeah. and create a craving for them so that we come back and spend more time on these apps. They are designed with psychologists and physiologists to do just that. And so I believe that distracted fitness, where it's party all the time, entertainment, distraction, the instructors are entertainers, has the growth of that has paralleled the rise of these, these distraction apps. And that fitness met brains where they were. Brains where I need distraction. I need to be entertained. I cannot be with myself. It is too distressing. It is too terrifying. And so the rise of, I believe, distracted fitness parallels the growth of these distraction addictive apps. That's all prelude to me saying this. I think times are changing. I'm seeing increasing numbers of articles in, in well-respected publications saying that mindfulness and fitness is the next wave. Mm. And that's and that's coming from the realization that perhaps being distracted even more at the end of an already distracting day is probably not the best way <laughs> no. for us to spend our time. And in fact, the benefits of mindfulness and being present are becoming increasingly understood. And the lifetime benefits of tuning into the movement and noticing how good it makes you feel outweigh any short-term distraction that might get you into a fitness class. So I believe that we're on the verge of a mindfulness revolution in fitness. You know what's funny, Michael? I have heard this exact same comment from so many different people that I highly respect in the business. I think there's enough people who are seeing it that we're all we're all sensing it. We're all sensing this wave coming. And it's interesting. I feel like for myself, being in the business for almost 20 years, I remember the rise of distracted fitness completely. I, I saw it coming so long before it hit because I was working with equipment manufacturers, big, you know, manufacturers, Technogem and Life Fitness, Precore and all these places, companies. And when they were putting, you know, really more complex um like screens on cardiovascular equipment. And then they're starting to put social media on equipment and checking your email. And I remember talking to one of our reps and I said, why would you put this stuff on these machines? It's, isn't that the opposite of what people are supposed to be doing on them? Checking their email, <laughs> going through Facebook. I'm like, first of all, as, as someone who was a high level athlete at one point, particularly like, I want to be close to the activity I'm doing. I want to be feeling my body. I, how can I do that when I'm scrolling through something? <laughs> and I'm like, 
checking in comments and stuff. And they were like, oh, people love technology. And I said, I don't think it belongs here. I really don't. And now seeing how the rise of equipment that is becoming more manual. So now the same companies are producing um, like skill mills, manual treadmills with no electric on it, except for basically looking at data information on it or the yeah. rowers or their, you know, um, spin bikes. So it's almost like it's kicking back like, hey, when you come in here to do your movement, your exercise, be into it. Don't be distracted. Problem is, though, you have phones with people all the time as well with it. So. Yeah. Yeah. Well, our brains just crave that. They really do. I'll, I'll tell you some interesting anecdotes. In, in the early days of RevoCycle, when people didn't know what we were and they'd come here looking for the Soul Cycle experience, they would not only not get it, Darian, but they would get extremely upset, as in angry. Mm. And I, I can tell you, we have some of the best instructors in the nation, knowledgeable, passionate, focused, nice. And they would come to me and say, Michael, someone got really mad in my class and walked out. And I remember going, really? You're the nicest person I know. You're the right. best instructor on the West Coast. I don't get it. And then I, after thinking it through for some time, I realized, ah, they weren't distracted enough. They found themselves present with themselves and they found it aggravating and distressing, especially since their expectations of being distracted and entertained were not met. Yeah. It's a bit of a double whammy. And that, of course, will cause anxiety and anxiety will often come out as anger. And so we realized, oh, wow. This, this distraction is super important to people because it's really hard to be present, especially when you're not expecting to have to be. Yeah. And so, yeah, like you say, all the manufacturers for easily decade, two decades, have been adding more and more entertainment and distraction features to the machines in order to get people to use it. In fact, I just did a Google search the other day on entertainment and fitness or entertainers in fitness, you know, uh -huh. they entertainers, <laughs> you know, right. just kind of read, read up on it. And, you know, the first six hits are companies selling distracted devices for fitness facilities. And several of them start with a sure way to keep your clientele and build up a good customer base is provide them entertainment options for their fitness programs. <laughs> I disagree with that. I, <laughs> I don't understand. Yeah, no. And so it starts, as we've talked about now, probably 45 minutes ago. Much of fitness starts with the assumption that exercise sucks, but you got to do it in order to get hot. And with that assumption then follows all sorts of things, one of which is you got to be entertained and distracted to do it. That is just a fundamental, unquestioned assumption in fitness. And I question it. I question it too. In fact, I, I've questioned it with a lot of people in my lifetime. I, you know what? You're making me think of things I haven't thought of in a lot of time, long time. And especially, I remember talking to this one guy one time, and I said, um, "I'm not used to like um, having all this music and stuff when I work out. I'm used to a very solitary existence of running in this very meditative oval on a track and a and a pack with a pack of guys running in a circle regularly." doing intervals and all that. 
And I said, I just, you know, I can listen to music, but at some point it just, it just distracts me from getting into my flow. And I remember he looked me dead in the eye. He goes, I couldn't work out without music. I couldn't work out with some, without something keeping me engaged. I said, that's a problem. That's a larger problem than exercise, my friend. <laughs> you know, yeah. I know. And I would say to that person, I, I hear these people all the time. I, I would say to them, I know you believe that. And I know it feels that way. Mm-hmm. But can you imagine seeing your movement form as a way of being present in and of itself rather than as a way to get body part, lose weight, you know, sculpt the thighs, whatever. I, I, I call that the fitness for belief system. Right, fitness for, yeah. Fitness for fill in the body part or body style. And right. if, you, if, if you can say to somebody, I get what you're saying, and I know you believe that, and if that gets you moving, that's not a bad thing. It's not. But can you see something more here? Because there is. And I, I will introduce you to the entire athletic world who will agree with me that there's something more here. It's something more than just working out in order to change your body. You can turn working out in a way to change your mind. And that's potentially transformative. Well, it is. Not potentially. It's, it's it hugely is. transformative. You're yeah. asking somebody or you're telling somebody, say, hey, what if I told you that there was a world, there is a portal that you can enter that you've never yeah. been to before? Like would be yeah. much better than whatever you're listening to, whatever you're thinking will keep you distracted so that you can just get it over with. What if I told you you could meet yourself in that place and that magically the exercise you're doing would feel like two minutes instead of an hour? It would be yes. a, that's a powerful place to it be. It is. It is. And I can tell you, Darren, I have seen people come to our classes expecting us to be in the soul cycle come to the very, very harsh mm-hmm. and sometimes frightening realization that we're not. And then you can see the, oh, no, look on their face. Yeah. And I say, come, come with me on this little journey we're going to do. Just come with me. It's going to be different, but come with me. And then at the end of class, I'll go, okay, well, we're going to move now into our cool down song. So let's just reduce the resistance, sit up, slow our legs. And you can see them turn and look at their friend. And say, no way, 50 minutes just went by. Right. And if they do that, then I know they've absorbed the message. Because I know then that they at least got into the flow state a few times during that class. And it, it, the, the look on their face is just remarkable. And then we'll talk afterwards and I'll say, now, wasn't that interesting? Did I yell at you today? Nope. Did I cause you to do dance moves? <laughs> And to lift weights while we were writing? No. Mm. Were there long periods of time when I said nothing? Yep. And yet time flew. Yep. <laughs> and so we have a real opportunity to introduce people to this new way of thinking. And it's, it's really gratifying when it happens. Well, it's interesting. It's almost of, you know, the term time flies when you're having fun. But, yeah, in many things you, you can have a lot of fun and time does fly. But I don't necessarily think that that's always the best way of looking at it for exercise purposes for that. And that time generally flies when you're meeting yourself 
in a very flow, transformative way, it flies. Yeah. You can yep. fly, you know. And as a Hungarian psychologist who coined the term said, being in the flow state is the most profoundly happy place you can be as a human being. Well, I don't think it can be said any better than that to end this off for this so. Michael, Dr. Hosking, I completely am uh, thankful for your presence on my podcast and for bringing some incredible information uh, to the listeners. So thank you for agreeing to be on, man. Appreciate it. Oh, it was really fun. I love talking about this. I love talking to someone like you. We have such similar backgrounds and experiences. So thank you for the opportunity. And it was great to talk to you today. Great to talk to you too. Have a wonderful rest of your day. All right. You too. All right. Bye.